Good morning. Um, my name is Larry Williams, and I serve uh, here at Hillcrest as the missions pastor and executive director. And it is my great privilege this morning to introduce our speaker for the morning, uh, John Segarian. Uh, John and I have been friends for a very long time. Um, John began working uh, with Youth for Christ in Lebanon in 1971 and uh, served as the national director in that country up through 2010. And he and his family served there through the entire 15 years of that country's civil war with the bombs falling around them and yet they chose to remain and be a, really a witness for God in the midst of that difficulty. And John is a person that, that I have come to know as a person of integrity, both in his personal life but also in his ministry to, to stay and be a light in very dark place. And uh, John uh, uh, left the role of National Director for Lebanon YFC in 2010 to become the Regional Director for the Middle East and North Africa uh, for Youth for Christ International. And he'll share a little bit about a couple of the countries uh, that they're uh, serving uh, in just a moment when he comes to speak. But I would really commend to you uh, my brother John. And for those who might want to speak with him afterwards or learn a little bit more about his ministry in the Middle East and North Africa, he'll be out at a little table in the lobby after the service if you'd like to uh, come and speak with them. So would you join me in welcoming my friend John Segarian. Good morning. As I said in the earlier service, I want to thank you for making me feel so welcome in your church because in my church back in Beirut, also people don't sit in the front. <laughs> so thank you. As Larry said, in 2010, I became the regional director for Middle East North Africa. Uh, as you know, Middle East North Africa is a very quiet, stable, peaceful part of the world. Um, <clears throat> nothing much happens there, it's almost boring. But when I say I'm regional director for Middle East North Africa, it's, it sounds more impressive than it really is. Uh, we're only in six countries right now. Uh, we do ministry in some of the other countries, but Youth for Christ exists actually in five. There's a, we have a presence in a sixth one. But this morning, I just want to share about, about three of them. Every 18 months or so, we bring together the staff of the Middle East North Africa. This is last March. We were in Dubai. There were about 40 of us. Uh, we, for three days, we pray for each other. We listen to each other's uh, problems, the challenges, the blessings. Uh, we plan ahead as much as we can. The next one is going to be next March uh, in, two year, in two years from the last one. So you might want to pray for that. The first country I want to go to is Egypt. Uh, this is the Nile, which is the, the life of Egypt. Um, you know, Cairo, every, I go to Egypt maybe three times a year. Every time I go there, I stand in a corner of Cairo and I say, where would you start? If you're going to clean up this place, um, Broken sidewalks, dust, dirt, garbage, a lot of people, a lot of noise. Where would you start? Where would you start to tell these people about Jesus? Uh, I don't have an answer. But Youth for Christ has been uh, working there for quite a few years. Uh, in Upper Egypt, which is the southern part, in Upper Egypt they have four teams. One of them is leadership training team. They go into the different uh, villages. There are small uh, evangelical churches with not many resources, so they train their youth leaders. 
And uh, last year we were there. This is a Greek Orthodox church and conference center. We spent two days there with these young people, and they train them over a year, and then they do an outreach with them. Uh, then they have a sports uh, team down there. They bring the young people, the kids. They have different games that they have come up with, all with some kind of Christian message. And after they play outside, they bring them into the church, and there's, they have a drama team which presents the gospel through drama, and then someone gives a message and gives an inv invitation. The day we were there, uh, quite a few of those kids came forward and gave their lives to Christ. Back in Cairo, they have a sports ministry. Albert, who is the director of the sports ministry, he has uh, five soccer clubs, and he has some volunteers that work with him, some of them Brazilians who just work and live in Egypt, but they're Christians, and they help him. They train these kids how to play soccer, how to play fair, but they also teach them about Jesus. One of those five clubs is all Muslim kids. Uh, another ministry they have is among girls. The lady there that's standing by the door, her name is Ruth. She has a burden for girls that come from very miserable and unhealthy home situations. And in, in a part of Cairo, which is very poor, even though it's Christian, Christian Orthodox, uh, they have a center. And these girls come, uh, 16, 17 years old, and uh, they, they come from a very closed family situation. They're, they don't go to school. Uh, their parents are just waiting for them to get married, 16, 17, 18, 20 years old. They know nothing about life. So Ruth and her team take them in. They, they teach them hygiene. They teach them about life. They prepare them for marriage. And of course, they told them, tell them about Jesus. And when they accept Christ, then they disciple them. There are some families that won't even let their girls go to this place. So the, uh, Ruth and her team, they go and visit them, visit them in their homes. It's an exciting ministry. And then I want to go on to Lebanon, which is my country. Lebanon is a small country. It's only 50 miles wide, 120 miles long. It's a beautiful country, especially from a distance. When you get close, you see the garbage. We went through a civil war from 1975 to 1990, and we've had skirmishes since then. Uh, Lebanon is a country of... Four and a half million um, Lebanese uh, only. It's the land of the cedar, about which you read in the Bible. There are a few trees left uh, in the north and somewhere in the, in the middle. But we have a very good and growing Youth for Christ ministry. Uh, we have a very good staff. This is our uh, staff retreat last year. The guy on the right in the blue, his name is Maher. Uh, he came to Christ in YFC. He was followed up. Uh, he was discipled. He was trained as a youth leader. He worked with us for a few years as a full-timer. Um, I mentored him, and he took over in 2012. He's really expanded the work. He's doing a marvelous job. They, they work in uh, 12 evangelical schools where the students are not all evangelical. They come from different backgrounds. They have summer camps uh, in the summer, one for senior high, one for junior high. Uh, they have music ministry. They have a young man on their staff that is very musical, and he has gathered young people who would like to play music, to play, like to play guitar, and he's trained them. And there are three different groups from beginners to very well accomplished musicians. And during the year, they, they perform, and they go to the uh, schools twice a year, and they do a tour, and they present the gospel through music. They also lead worship in different events that they have. As I said, we have four and a half million uh, Lebanese, but during these past uh, few years, because of what's happened in Syria, uh, 
we've had refugees come into Lebanon. They estimate that there are two million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. That means that one out of three people in the streets are Syrians. Well, not in the streets because they're outside there in the north or in the east, some in Beirut. It's a tragic situation. These people have lost everything. And yet this is a great opportunity that the church has used to reach into these communities, the Syrian tent communities or refugee communities. Some NGOs have been working with them, Christian NGOs. And YFC has partnered with these NGOs and the churches to work with the young people. They have about seven clubs around Beirut and the, in the eastern Bekaa Valley. And in the summer, they bring these kids for three-day camps and just give them a ball and watch them laugh and run around like they have no cares in the world. And yet they hear about Jesus. And some of those Muslim young people have responded and opened their lives to Christ. Another thing we've done in the last maybe four years is uh, we have brought out 25 to 30 youth leaders from churches into Beirut for three days, and we've trained them in youth leadership. We do one for the evangelical churches, and we do one for the Catholic and Orthodox churches. These guys are staying in Syria. They want to stay there, and they want to serve, and we give them the tools to serve. And then one more thing. This is a group in Iraq. I was there beginning of November. Uh, Maher and I and two other people, we went there, again, for three days only, uh, we had 55 youth leaders from around Iraq, uh, from, uh, from Baghdad and dangerous places. They came and spent three days with us and we gave them youth leadership training, how to be and how to do youth lead leadership. Next country I want to talk, to, uh, talk about is Jordan. Jordan is our newest country. And uh, this, this is Rami, if you remember his name, R-A-M-I, pray for him. He's a new guy, he's a new national coordinator there. He used to work with an oil company uh, in Iraq and in, in the region, made good money, but God said, leave that and go into Christian youth work. This is before he knew anything about to Youth for Christ or me. God brought us together. He's the national coordinator. And what he's done so far is he's put together a group of volunteers as his staff. Um, I met with them a few times, very sharp people. They, they are working in different uh, kinds of jobs, but they're sharp and they have a commitment to the Lord and a commitment to reach young people. And last year he put together, or they put together a conference for a hundred young youth leaders from around Jordan uh, for two days and they trained them in discipleship. They did one just recently again uh, this year uh, on, on evangelism. So that's in a nutshell, a very small nutshell, the ministry in the Middle East. You know, life is full of surprises. If you had told the Syrian people maybe five years ago that this would happen to them, uh, they wouldn't have believed you. Uh, Christians in Syria especially have been leaving. Uh, and the Christians that leave are saying, why is this happening to us? Iraq used to have five million Christians. Now they say it's less than half a million. Egypt, for the first time in the last three, four years, Christians have been thinking, maybe we too should, should leave. Uh, Christians used to be maybe 40% of Lebanon. Now it's less than uh, 30%, maybe 25%. Our life is full of surprises. Suddenly you get word that you're promoted. That's a good surprise. Or suddenly you get word that there is a pink slip waiting for you at your desk. It's a bad surprise. You fail in school. You weren't expecting that. You fail in marriage. Your relationships uh, are broken. Um, 
Your business fails. Somebody in your home gets sick. You're not feeling well. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I'm sorry, I've got some bad news for you. You have an incurable disease. What do we do when we have bad surprises in our lives? Let me tell you my story. In 1978, I got married to Nancy. Nancy is from Des Moines, Iowa, not too far from here. She went in 1972, she went as a missionary to Geneva, Switzerland. She was 19 years old. She went for two years. Uh, that's the headquarters of Youth for Christ International. Uh, she went for two years, ended up staying there for five years. We got married in 78, and she came and lived and served with me in Lebanon. Uh, she served through the, the war years. Just let me just say one thing about, about her. She, uh, she never said, I want to go back to the States. This is it. I can't stand this. We have no water, no electricity all the time. We are bombing, and we are hiding in the basement sometimes. Every now and then she would say, are you sure God wants you here? <laughs> and I would say, I'm sure. And she would say, that's all I need to hear. And God honored that faithfulness. God gave us two children, uh, Tia and Jay. Tia, our daughter, is married. They're both married. Tia lives in Northern Ireland, uh, working on her PhD. She li lives there because she liked to live with her husband, and he's from there. Uh, Jay is a firefighter, paramedic in Omaha. Um, and God gave us a wonderful family life together. We, we loved each other. We were very close to each other. The same month, July 2010, that I became the director of, uh, the regional director for Middle East North Africa. That same month, Nancy was back in the States visiting her uh, family. Uh, she wasn't feeling well. She went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you've got cancer. Uh, she had eventually found out that she had two primary cancers, uh, ovarian and pancreatic um, trying to figure out what to do. One of them was stage three, the other one was stage four. Um, we got word that my mom passed away, so we went back to Lebanon for the funeral, stayed there for Tia's wedding, came back to the States, and over the next 14 months, she had two surgeries, two rounds of chemo. A lot of people prayed for her. Um, I pray for a healing, not just in the States, but uh, in Lebanon, around the world, people that uh, knew us, people that loved Nancy. And God heard our prayers. I believe that he heard our prayers and he answered our prayers, and his answer was no. And on September 21, 2011, Nancy died. Um, I lost my best friend, my wife and lover, my partner in ministry. It's interesting how that same question was asked of us. Why you? Why did this happen to you? And when people, especially Christians, go through a difficulty and they ask this question, there's an, there's an assumption behind that question. And the assumption is, because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are living in a bubble. And the bubble is there to protect us from pain, from failure, from loss, from death. That if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, this, is, this shouldn't happen to me. Why is it happening to me? There's a verse in the Bible, Matthew 5, 45. It says, 
He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If I can paraphrase that, when tragedy comes, it comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. When civil war happens, it happens to the believers and the non-believers. They both lose their homes. When cancer comes, it will hit the believer and the non-believer. So people ask, what's the point of being a Christian? If I'm going to suffer like my non-Christian neighbor, if I'm going to have cancer and die like non-believer, what's the point of being a Christian? Well, I think the difference is how we react to it. When difficulty comes, how do we react to it? Because we have a choice. How, do, how we deal with it determines the direction of our lives for years to come. Will we be angry and bitter and keep asking why, why, why? And we won't find the answer to that. Or do we ask ourselves, now what do I do? Okay, this has happened. How can I live my life now so that somehow something good will come out of this, out of this tragedy? How do we live? We live with hope. Unfortunately, the word hope is very weak in English. If someone had asked you earlier this morning, are you going to church? You might have said, I hope so. Which basically means, I might go if there's nothing better. If I go, it's okay. If I don't go, it's okay. I hope so. It's very weak. In Arabic, there are two words for hope. Amal and Raja. Amal refers to hope that comes from changed circumstances. For example, if you go into your math class and you sit for your exam and, and someone asks you later, how do you do, what do you think you'll get? You say, I hope I'm getting better grades than I, I thought. What's it based on? Well, the, the questions were easier than I expected. I remembered more than I usually do. And the teacher said he was going to go easy on the way he was going to grade that paper. Circumstances have changed a bit. So your hope is that you'll get a better grade. Raja is hope that comes from heaven. It is in spite of the fact that circumstances are very bleak. There is no hope. It's dark, black, and yet we have hope. But hope in what? Hope in whom? Do, do you remember back in 1978 the story of Jim Jones? All those people that put their hope in Jim Jones and he made them all drink Kool-Aid with poison. 918 people committed suicide in one group. You can put your hope in the wrong place. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 42, 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah 40, 30, 31. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Hope in the Lord. Hope in God. So heavenly hope means placing my hope in this Lord, in, in his word and his promises, not just theoretical wishes. But what does it mean to live with hope? How do I live with hope? We always talk about Christian faith being faith. Christian life being faith, you live by faith. What's the connection between faith and hope? 
In Colossians 1.23, we read, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. In the olden times when the sail ships used to sail on the ocean, the captain always kept his eye on the North Star. As long as he knew where the North Star was, he could direct the ship and they used to row and set the sail accordingly. I think it's a, that's a small picture of our Christian faith. If we keep our eyes on, on the hope that Christ has given us, and then we live our life by faith, day by day. But our eyes are kept on the hope, the hope that one day we will spend eternity with him. He has promised that. Hope meaning, uh, living with hope means living with eternity in our sights, in preparation for eternity. How do we do that? I believe that because Christ died and rose from the dead, I have hope. Our hope is in Christ who resisted temptation, who beat Satan, who overcame death. And I believe that Christ is our hope because through him, through him, we know God the Father. And he himself said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will die, uh, sorry, will live even though he dies. Very familiar verse. Very familiar. And I wonder if we really, really understand or believe this. That if I have, if I believe in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, that even though I will die physically, I will live for eternity. If I really believe that, that should make a difference in the way I live today. I look at circumstances around me and I say, yes, but I will live for it eternally. That should color my life here. So when we, feel in the, when we fear in despair because we have sinned, we have failed, someone we know has died, we're depressed, we're hopeless, let's remember that in Christ we have hope. And that hope will light up your life. And through you will light up the world that is around you. And how we live on this earth, who we live for here, will determine our eternity. And not just eternity, the coming days, however long God gives you in this life. So, we have a choice. We have a choice in two things. One of them is our attitude. We have a choice in our attitude. When Nancy got sick and after she died, people would send me cards and letters and emails, and usually they would put in a verse or two to encourage us. And I put all those verses on an Excel sheet with the date of who, and who sent it. And every now and then I would go, go back and look at those verses. One of the verses that really encouraged me is from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, 17, 18. Listen to verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Let's stop there for a minute. What does this have to do with me as I walk around with my iPad and iPhone? At the bottom of that, put your own problem. I can put down there, though Nancy is not lying next to me anymore. 
The word though should tell us there is something good coming up. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It's my choice. Even though I'm hurting, I'm lonely, I'm crying, I'm, I'm depressed, yet I decide to rejoice in the Lord my Savior. That will change my attitude, and it does. It makes a huge difference. It's... In a sense, it's easier said than done, but it is possible. It can be done. Your attitude is your choice. The second area where you have a choice is whether we learn from our pain or not. That's our choice. Do we learn from our pain? Because if this life is in preparation for eternity, and if I believe that God is good and loving then I can trust him to use everything in this life for his glory and my good. Can I repeat that? If I believe that this life is in preparation for eternity, and if I believe that God is good and loving, then I can trust him to use everything in this life for his glory and my good. Here are a couple of uh, passages that I'm sure you know. James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whether you, uh, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Romans 5, 3, and 5, 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Rejoicing in, in our sufferings. Not in the sense that we are jumping up and down and we come into, our group, into your group and say, Hey, great! I'm suffering! This is wonderful! There'd be something wrong with you if you did that. <laughs> but even as you suffer and you're hurt, you can trust the Lord because He's going to take you step by step from suffering to perseverance to a stronger character and then hope. Why would God use pain to teach me something? Why couldn't he give me a pill that I could swallow at night, get up in the morning, and it, I've, I've learned the lesson? That's the way life is. We all like celebrations. We enjoy celebrations, but we don't learn anything from them. I learn more from pain than from joy. I learn better as I go through struggles than when I'm celebrating. I grow more through my trials than through my successes. If God is going to teach me something like patience, he's going to put me in a situation that makes me impatient so I can learn, like traffic. Or as someone said, give, uh, give me three teenage boys. That's where you learn patience. If God is going to teach me how to love, he's going to put me with people who are unlovable. It's easy to love lovable people. I don't learn anything there. God uses pain and struggling and our daily struggle to teach us something. And I think the key to it is our understanding of the character of God. Is your God a loving God who wants the best for you? 
Or is he a tyrant more interested in punishing you? If I believe that he is a loving father who wants me to grow as a person and become more Christ-like, then I can believe that he will use circumstances in my life to mold my character and make me more like Christ. So it is essential that I understand that God is trustworthy. Maybe that's the starting point. Who is God for you? Is he good or not? I believe he's good. A few years ago, I was invited to speak to a group of young people in the United Arab Emirates. Youth for Christ does something there called Desert Challenge. They bring together about 150 uh, young people from the different churches there that are there. And they're all from around the world. These are all expats. Uh, Americans, Europeans, Arabs, Africans, Asians. Three days of teaching and, and training and worship. And they'd asked me to speak about Jesus being the answer to our struggles and our pain. So we had about half an hour of worship time. Great band. The young people are up, standing up, jumping up, having a great time. I was introduced. They all sat down on the hard marble floor. And as I usually do in these situations, I come up from, uh, front and I say, God is good. And they all shout back, all the time. And I say, all the time. And they shout back, God is good. And I said, let me tell you about who I am. I told them a bit about uh, my background in Lebanon and what I did in Youth for Christ. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. I said, really? What do you do when things go wrong? So I told, told them the story of Nancy. She had died, I think, the year before. So as I went through the story, you could almost he feel the pressure go down. And I got to the, to the end, and I said, and God's answer was no, and Nancy died. God is good. There was a half-hearted all the time. And I looked at them, I said, really? Really? And then I said, yes, he is. Even when you don't understand it, God is good. Because you know the character of God and you trust him. Even when things go wrong, you don't understand why God is good. Because we trust him. And so we pray with faith. Usually when we're going through difficulty, we pray that God will remove the difficulty. Will remove the pain. Instead of, instead of that, we should say, Lord, use this. Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. In the first chapter, he describes about how uh, he, uh, he was driving his van with his family and a drunk driver ran into the car, killed his mother, his wife, and his daughter. I think he had two sons or three sons that he had to take care of after that. And in that book, it's a very good book, by the way, I recommend it. He says, perhaps the most difficult prayer any of us can utter is this. God, use this adversity to transform me. Because when we pray like that, it means we are surrendering to God, telling him, I acknowledge him as Lord. And I acknowledge the fact that I don't understand what's going on. And I cannot deal with it by myself. So help me. Help me. You see, when you go through any significant grief experience, you come out of it as different people. 
depending on the way you respond to the event. You are either stronger or weaker. Healthier in spirit or sicker. And faith doesn't just happen when the difficulty comes. Faith is an everyday experience. And we learn now, and then when the difficulty comes, then we can put it into use. And when we live like that, we can say with Paul, and I'm paraphrasing 2 Timothy 4, 7, you ask me about the good fight, I have fought it. You want to know about the race, why I have finished it. As for the faith, well, you know what? I have kept it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you because you are a God we can trust, our creator, our loving Father. And sometimes things happen in our lives that we don't understand, we don't like, that cause pain and suffering, loneliness. But thank you that you know what's going on. You are not surprised. And thank you that we can trust you to help us walk through that. And Father, I pray for everyone here, whatever our problem is, whatever is causing us pain, I pray that you would help us to put that at your feet and you say, Lord, use this to strengthen my character and make me more like Christ. In his name I pray, amen.